Good to see everybody. Welcome to Restoration. If you're new, we're glad you're here. We're going to take our offering right now. And so if you're new, you can let that kind of sneak right on by you. Um, but if that's part of your, you're part of this church, you can just uh, be a part of that. That'd be great. Hey, listen, last Sunday we did House Church Sunday. Uh, many of you were a part of that. I hope you uh, benefited, yeah, from a great time of just uh, close proximity with each other. <laughs> um, kids and breakfast and, and worship and, and teaching together. So um, it's just part of the rhythm of our church around February that we do that. And uh, we're just grateful that you were a part of that. For those, those of you who were free, fearful of doing that last week, I just wanna encourage you, it's, it's most of the time what we hear from people after House Church Sunday is, man, why can't we do that more? Um, and it's just a great opportunity to meet people. And um, so next year, mark your calendar. You're doing it, okay? Um, hey, a uh, couple of things, a little quick family moment as in the life of our church. I wanted to share a few things with you in regards to children's ministry. First of all, our children's ministry is so great. Um, Janelle and Jessica and the team across, you can hear like the the fun happening next door. Um, and so for about uh, uh, three or four weeks now, I've known that Jessica and Janelle actually came to me and said, hey, we're, we're gonna need to step down. Um, we are um, doing so much stuff with our own jobs and our own lives, and this is something we wanna pour more time into and we can't. And so uh, a few weeks ago, they shared that with us. Um, if you were a part of the children's team meeting yesterday, you heard that news as well. And, and here's the great news. Janelle and Jessica are, um, have, have just done such a wonderful job connecting you with the ministry and things like that, that uh, we just have a great volunteer team. Um, they are gonna be staying on board until the end of May. And we are actually searching for somebody else to take over leadership of our children's ministry. And um, the beauty of Jessica and Janelle is they actually, I don't know if you know this backstory. The backstory is about three years ago, we lost our children's uh, director. Her family moved to Arkansas. And so we were actually working with uh, somebody to take over the children's ministry. And then they moved to Colorado Springs. And Jessica and Janelle are like, hey, listen, we'll take over on an interim basis, which interim means three years, right? So they actually took over and for three years have actually tripled the size. I mean, I know procreation had a lot to do with that, but <laughs> they tripled the size of our children's team and our children's ministry and uh, we are just so grateful for them. So here's the other thing, uh, they love our church. And so this is partly why they're doing it. They're recognizing both of them have gotten promoted in their own jobs, um, have a ton more responsibility in their own life, and they just recognize they can't do much more to take it to the next level. So this is a perfect time for them to step away. They're still gonna be a part of this church. In fact, they're still gonna be potentially involved in the children's ministry. In the, they're gonna volunteer. Shh, don't tell anybody. Um, but it's, it's, it's really an exciting time for them. And so, Praying for, uh, pray for us as we do that search. Um, if you think anybody's a good candidate, um, let us know. We will, um, we will vet them and interview them and all that. So just want to let you know that. So when you see Jessica and Janelle today, just love on them, hug them. They're doing great. So we're excited. 
Um, last but not least, Janelle asked that we would announce that there, we need more people to be a part of the care team. Um, as more and more people uh, jump, be a part of this church, our care team is just people that uh, make meals for people when they're going through a surgery or a newborn or whatever. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, it's, it's an as-needed basis. So you can sign up for stuff and jump in and be a part, all right? Last but not least, if you do have any questions about children's stuff, ask me, ask our leadership team. Aubrey, Ben, Janine, um, Barrett are all here today. Um, you can talk to Jessica and Janelle as well. So let's pray and we'll get started. God, thank you for this opportunity for us to gather um, together. And as much as we also loved gathering together in smaller communities last week, God, it is good to be together as a large group today. Would you steer us, challenge us, um, search us this morning as we dive into a very well-known passage that hopefully will have significant impact on us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Turn to Daniel chapter 6. If you have a Bible, um, we are in a series called Citizens and Exiles. And what this series really is about is, is we're laying the foundation for the idea that things are changing. Like the ground underneath our feet is shifting. We now live in what sociologists call a post-Christian culture, meaning that um, Christianity as we know it, like a Christianized culture, is no longer um, the reality. And, and so for us as followers of Jesus, um, how do we engage our culture? How do we engage our world creatively. And, and the, the pushback sometimes is we have, to, we have to balance the tension of wanting to separate ourselves from uh, society and from culture. And, and then the other side of the pendulum is this idea of just blending in and just becoming like everything else around us. And so we've been using the text of Daniel, we've been using this idea of exile to kind of help us understand what it looks like to live as followers of Jesus in a foreign land, as Peter calls sojourners, okay? Peter called the, uh, the, the people of God in the early church, we are sojourners, we are exiles living in a different world. Uh, Jonathan Sachs, this quote won't be on the screen, but uh, he talks about how it's not easy to do this. He says, to be a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. And so we're using uh, the text of Daniel, we're using the life of Daniel as kind of a, a primer on how to do this. And, and Daniel used Jeremiah's words as almost like a, a, a prep or a, a roadmap for how to live in exile. And so we're gonna jump into chapter uh, six today. And, and all of this is really this question, how do we thrive, how do we survive as a creative minority in this culture? Okay, how do we do that? And um, 
Because here's the thing, I'm just gonna warn you, 10 years from now, it's gonna even look a lot different than it does now. And as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, we need to be intentional about how we view our place, okay, in our society. So this is uh, the lion's den passage. This is another one of those felt board passages. Um, And um, if you don't know what that is, you've escaped Christianity for the past 30 years. (laughs) Chapter six, verse one. It pleased Darius... Okay, we have a new king to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Okay, this is 60 years after chapter one. So a lot of times we're reading the chapters in Daniel and we're just like, oh, the next day. No, this is 60 years later. After chapter one, Daniel is um, an older man. We believe he's in his 70s. Let's hear it for the 70s, right? Anybody? Got a few of you. You can still pull weight around here. Daniel's in his 70s. He's rocking the 70s. And he is um, still very much in the mix. Babylon has been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay? So if you were at house church, we talked about this letter that Nebuchadnezzar, and, and he was like eating grass, and you can go back and read it. And there's a new king on the throw. This, this empire now is even larger. It spans uh, a huge geographic reg- region from Egypt all the way up to Russia, what is modern-day Russia, and then all the way east to Pakistan, the Indus River. And it's this huge, wide, expansive uh, kingdom. And so the new king, Darius, appoints 120 governors to rule over his region. And then it says in verse two, with three administrators over them, one of them was Daniel. So, you know, just even a higher uh, form of government there. Satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel, 70s in his 70s, not only has lived through two kingdoms, and we think, depending on you, how you count, three or four kings, he's still at it. Decades later, basically, this king, Darius, is like, you run the empire, Daniel. I'm just going to enjoy being king. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. So they could find no corruption. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law and his God. So similar to chapter three, his coworkers are jealous, they're angry, um, and he's gotten more and more importance. And and they're like, this guy's not even a Persian, he's a Jew, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so these administrators, verse six, and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. This is another sucking up to the king thing. 
The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, and advisors, and governors, we've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, or except the actual, the Hebrew, or actually it's Aramaic, except through you, okay, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So here's what they do. They appeal to the king's vanity, right? Which is a brilliant political strategy. We see this all the time in our politics, right? We appeal to, you know, a politician's vanity. And so that is basically what is happening here. And so verse 10, it says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. So Daniel is, is, this is another moment where Daniel's, totally punk rock. Like he knows what's happening. Like he knows there's this kind of thing pushing against him, right? And he's just going to do what he always does. And he prays towards Jerusalem, prays right through the window. And odds are, this is a, a practice that that he, he was given, that he understood, that has been part of, of Jewish, um, part of the people of Israel for a while. Now, it's not a command. Listen, listen to 1 Kings 8. This is, this is probably where he gets this. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven. And forgive the sin your servants, your people of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live, and send rain on the land you have. You gave your people for an inheritance. So imagine you're Daniel, and you're recalling in exile um, to pray towards your home. Now, have you ever been on a long trip or uh, missed your family so much that uh, you were kind of like you just knew directionally where they were? And you were just longing for that direction. Is anybody, anybody besides me? Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But like, man, I just know that direction, thousands of miles away, that's where they are. And that's kind of like what, what Daniel's like, he, his homeland, he's, he, three times a day, he, he makes it a point to pray towards Jerusalem. And it's not a command. There's nowhere in scripture that says this is a command. Hear me when I say this. It's just what Daniel did. It's just something in his heart. It was just part of his chosen daily routine. Fixed our prayer. This passage is not about a sin that Daniel will commit. It's about a practice in Daniel's life that he will not omit. He's not gonna get rid of it. And it would have been easy to say, here's the thing, just take a month off, Daniel. Just a month off. Dude, you're almost 80. It's cool. Like, just for 30 days, just shut the door, right? Just do it in secret. Just don't pray by the window. No big deal, right? But for Daniel, it was a big deal, and it was worth dying for. Um, 
to not just live out his allegiance in private, but in public. And so verse 11, then these men went as a group, I'm sure they already knew he was gonna be doing this, and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. They said, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except for you, your majesty would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so this seems to be some sort of like a constitutional monarchy situation where even the king, once he puts, he's got limits to his own power. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Your majesty or to your decree you put in, in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. So the king is upset. He knows he's been trapped by his own people. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. Hint, hint, you're stuck, right? We know you love this guy, but he's got to go. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Now, what's interesting here is a little backstory here with lions. Lions were a big deal for kings. Kings used to hunt lions for sport and capture lions for sport. They would use lions in capital punishment cases all the time. Um, so if someone was uh, 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 disloyal to the king, this was common practice. Um, and so all throughout ancient Near East, uh, kings would practice lion hunting, lion capture. Even as the early church experienced some, some issues with lions, you can go read about that. So he throws them into the... Check this out. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Like, like the king's rooting for Daniel. 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. So he's making sure everything is above board and above par. Then the king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he, he came near the den, he called to, to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Remember that line, I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift out Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So the, this idea of the law, um, what, what we're witnessing here is something called innocence by ordeal, okay? This is a very ancient practice, and, and sometimes it was used for, uh, they would use poison. Sometimes they would use um, other things. Sometimes it was actually mostly to do with water, meaning if someone was guilty of something, they would throw them in a raging river, and if they survived, then the gods were like, no, they're innocent. 
But if they die, they're like, yeah, he was probably guilty. So it's like a pretty, I'm super glad our justice system isn't that anymore. But that's what this was, innocence by ordeal. The idea was that Daniel was um, obviously innocent because the lions didn't eat him. And you can try this at home with your kids. This might be a great way to parent. I don't know. Maybe ask Jessica and Janelle. But so when Daniel's awake, he's awake and he's alive. And it's a sign that God was with him. It was a sign to the king that his God was with him. Now, verse 24, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den. Along with, this is classic, ancient Near East, their wives and their children. It's very barbaric. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed them, crushed all their bones. Then, the king, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the peoples in every language in all the earth. This is another one of those giant edict letters that goes out. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, so, okay, the ending of the story is really, really important because Darius writes to the entire kingdom saying that everyone must fear and honor the God of Daniel. And if you have an NIV, or I think it's even in the ESV, there's an end note there that says it can be translated, Darius, that is Cyrus the Persian. So there's a bunch of different scholarly debate on Darius. Uh, was Darius a viceroy to Cyrus? Was Darius actually the king? Uh, and, and there's just a lot of debate here. But what we know is that if you look in 2 Chronicles 36, this is, for some of you who've been doing the immerse reading, it's super thrilling reading, but it's background to all this, okay? At the end of Chronicles, Chronicles is actually the end of the actual Hebrew Bible is actually the final piece. This is the final piece. Chronicles 36, this is near the final piece. Uh, verse 22, it says this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we think this is right around the same time as this letter, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord, their God, be with them. How cool is that? I mean, here's what we have. We have, because of the influence of Daniel, and others as well. We got Ezra, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Spirit of God moving through them. Reverence, uh, the reverence of this God of the Hebrews named Yahweh began to flourish. He sends the, the Hebrew people, you're like, you're free to go, you're free to go back, rebuild your nation from the ground up. I mean, talk about influence. For decades, 
okay? We just have a few snapshot stories of Daniel and his friends. But for decades, Daniel has been seen as blameless. Daniel has been uh, continuing to worship his God in exile. Now, a major theme of Daniel is influence. And we've been talking about it the last number of weeks. There is negative influence and positive influence. Negative influence would be, how do we keep from being influenced by Babylon, right? How does Daniel, how do, the, how do the, his friends keep from being influenced by Babylon? How do we keep from being influenced by Denver? How do we keep from getting sucked in? And then there's the positive side of it, which is how do we then influence our city and our world? And that's been part of our conversation. So just a couple of things about influence from the story. There's a difference between power and influence. Power is top-down, coercive, uh, even against someone's will. That's, that's power, but that's also influence, but that's the negative side of it. The positive side of it would be the center-out-based, right? So center-out from my position. It, it's, it's focused on, on a person. It, it's convincing something, um, that, that's convincing people to do something that they normally wouldn't think about doing, but... Um, People like writers and artists and creative people like can have so much influence. And think about Martin Luther King and all these different people in our world that have had tremendous influence without power, right? Um, and so, and then the second thing I want to say is very few of us get to influence culture, capital C culture. Um, and in order to do that, you have to be kind of a celebrity or famous or, or like a major player in economics or things like that. A very few of us get to influence the, the larger culture, but we all get to influence like a small C culture, like the cultures that we're a part of in our, in our everyday lives. Um, I met with a guy t- uh, this week um, named Mark McIntosh. Some of you guys might, that might sound familiar to you, but he's been a, in Denver for a number of years as a sports broadcaster, it's Channel 4. Um, he's done a lot of radio stuff as well. Um, I got to meet with him this week. I actually met him at the Arvada High School basketball game um, a few weeks ago, and he is uh, putting a whole bunch of effort into uh, starting a, a grassroots thing at Arvada High School on leadership and helping the homeless and a whole bunch of things that are going on. It's called Three Chords Strong. And what's really cool about Mark is he's got all this influence. He's got all this connection with famous athletes and coaches and, and Bill McCartney and all these different people that he's bringing that all to bear on not only Arvada High School, but he's down in Inglewood as well. And I got to meet and hear his story and all that kind of stuff this week, which was really cool. And we're gonna be able to be a part of that as well. Um, but most of us have a small sphere of influence. We have a small sphere of influence and, and all of us have a reach in there, like family and friends and, and, and our jobs and things like that. So the question is, just like Daniel, what does it mean for you and I to have influence to be a creative minority here in Denver? And Dan and I were talking before the service just about what does it look like to be creative? Like, what does it look like to be creative with how we influence our world? And, um, and we're going to talk about that today and, and, and in the days to come. But this idea of seeing our community and seeing our collective pool of influence and leverage in our city is really important. John Tyson 
who kind of wrote um, a little bit of the definition of what it looks like to be a creative minority says this. It's a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Listen, it's, it's about being stubbornly loyal to each other in a complex time and practicing what it looks like to follow Jesus. Like giving it a shot, like trying this on, trying that out, trying to serve the poor in this way, trying to help a local school in this way, trying to figure out a a prayer rhythm in our lives, trying to learn how to manage our money in a way that honors the kingdom. All these things are practices that we can do to help have influence. And it's not about power, it's about influence. It's about what Jeremiah said, seeking the peace and the prosperity of the city. And I think there's really three ways we can do this. Um, Three ways that we can have influence. Um, Excellence, character, and faithfulness. The first one's excellence. And I think this is so important. Listen, this comes out of uh, chapter six, verse three. It says, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And, and remember, okay, this is, this is when he's in his 70s. Remember chapter one when he's in his teens. In every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and chanters in the whole kingdom. So the reason that Daniel rose, okay, in favor, not only because God gave him favor, but also because Daniel was just really good at what he did. Really good. And he worked at it. And, and it's this idea of whether you're a teacher or a business owner or a first responder or a nurse or whatever you do, be a craftsman at it. Like work at it. Like uh, this, it's a deeply biblical idea that actually runs all through scripture. Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Like really work at it. Daniel got better and better and better. Um, There's this classic Steve Martin quote that says, be so good they can't ignore you. Be good at what you do. Grow to grow in your sphere of influence. Then there's this depth of character. That's the second thing. It says this in verse four. At this, the administrators and the satraps, I hate the word satrap. It's just so awkward. Um, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So you may go, man, I'm not very corrupt. You know, I'm not a corrupt person, um, you know, but maybe you're like 10 minutes late to everything, you know, so everybody's just like, whatever. But like, maybe you're negligent in some things. Maybe, you're, maybe there's just like some things in your life. Maybe, maybe if the FBI, the CIA, and TMZ like all vetted you, right? <laughs> if all three of those, <laughs> if all three of them vetted you, okay? <laughs> it's just like TMZ everywhere. Um, if they all vetted you and nothing comes up, And if you want to influence culture, you don't have to be perfect, 
but you need to back up excellence with character. Like character is like the destiny part, right? If there's a gap between our excellence and our work and our character, uh, you remember that Olympic swimmer dude, uh, Ryan um, Lochte? Yeah, remember that guy? Like how many gold medals did he win? Yeah, but we don't remember him for the gold medals, right? That guy was like crazy, like that whole gas station deal and stuff. Like, here's the thing, like people don't remember you, okay? They remember you for your character mistakes. They don't remember you for like for your, 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 your excellence sometimes when we get into places of moral ambiguity. So, so this idea, like our culture is this culture of self. Our culture is... Um, now for us, there's no external authority. It's all about the internal authority. The self is now the ultimate arbiter of authority in our lives. Genesis 3 talks about this. You know that line that we're throwing around all the time, be true to yourself, you know that line? Do you remember that comes from Hamlet? Do you guys remember? Like anybody read Hamlet in high school? Come on, 12 of you, four? Cool. Hamlet, there's a story that, that I'm not gonna get into the whole thing, but Hamlet, the fool takes that advice he takes the advice of be true to yourself and it destroys him and it destroys the, everybody around him. David Brooks wrote a book called The Road to Character, um, skimmed it the other day. He makes the point that every great society was built on the pursuit of virtue, not happiness. That's what he, 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 he makes his point. And, and moral and spiritual authority uh, as a frame of reference. And he's like, our culture doesn't have um, a strategy to build character anymore. We don't have that in our culture. And it leads to a immoral society, which means that character actually sticks out more now than it ever has. And I think that um, being like Jesus, being a person of integrity, you will have influence it's a hard thing to do, but you will have influence. The last one is this, faithfulness. I mean, we just learned from verse one, decades go by and Daniel is still at it. He is still a man of character and influence. He is still praying towards his homeland three times a day. Faithfulness. He's to survive two empires, three to four kings, and he's still at it over the long haul problem is for many of us is we want it all now. We want, we want influence and we want, we want character and we want it all right now. And for many of us that grew up with a microwave and like, like all these things that are like super quick and easy, um, we're used to the world at our fingertips. Tech is even faster and faster and faster. But character and healthy relationships and legacy, that stuff doesn't happen with a snap of a finger. It doesn't happen overnight. It's about deliberate practice every day. Writer of Hebrews wrote this. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This idea of faith and faithfulness is the Greek word pistos. And faithfulness means having to have faith is to be faithful. It's like a calling on your life to, to uh, not to assimilate, assimilate or to compromise, but to be intentional that God is calling us to a life of staying steady and staying the course. 
do not underestimate the power of quiet faithfulness over a lifetime. So excellence and uh, character and faithfulness. And, and Daniel's not just about influence in general. Actually, Daniel's very specific type of influence here in this chapter. Uh, we talk about compromise um, early on. We talked about calling. We talked about non-participation. We talked about resistance even in our culture. But today, Daniel's, this specifically is Daniel talking about influence, okay, through witness. Influence through witness. And I know it's odd language. Um, Daniel is a witness to Yahweh as the one true creator God. That's what Daniel is in this story. Everybody knows who he worships. Everybody knows uh, who his God is. He doesn't have got the tattoo or the bullhorn or the hashtag or anything like that. He's, he's just appropriate and in very subtle and classy ways. He's not private about it. He's public about it. He's not private. It's all public. And, and that, it's like that man is a man of Yahweh. And what about you? And what about me? I mean, yeah, you're like, yeah, he's a pastor. So yeah, it probably is. But, but, but really, I mean, like, is the word out, right? Is the word out about you? Is the word out about me? Do people know that you are a follower of Jesus? See, our generation has lost its passion for talking about Jesus. And, and we use this really weird word. I'm going to say it now, and you're going to have this really weird feeling, evangelism. Anybody have a weird feeling? Right? It's just like kind of a like, oh, what is that? Ugh. It's like this old school language. Basically, the word evangelism, basically, euangelion, which is to announce, to herald. Okay? That's what that is. And... All it means is to preach the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, to announce Jesus. And this is like a central part of being an apprentice of Jesus. Jesus tells his followers all the time to go, to go, do it. Now, two reasons we have lost ground on this, okay? The first one has to do with kind of the culture we live in, this post-Christian moment that we're in. Um, our world wants to have nothing to do with faith in the public square. So this idea of believe whatever you want, you know, believe in the spaghetti, flying spaghetti monster or the whatever, just don't, just keep it to yourself, right, is the idea of our culture. And, and, and it feels intense. Um, we feel this intense motion, emotional pressure to just shut up and to go to church and to keep it to ourselves. And I get it. But the other thing that we have going against us is our own culture, right? Like our own Christian culture that, um, that like those old ways of talking to people about Jesus just don't work anymore. They just do not work. Um, do you remember like the old Christian event with the Christian band deal? And you'd invite your friends to the Christian event with the Christian band and no one's ever heard of this band. And then nobody? Okay, maybe that didn't strike a chord, but do you ever remember door-to-door -door evangelism? Like, what? Right? Like, like I, I remember talking to my friend Monty, who is a longtime pastor. He's like, here's what we used to do. When someone would come to our church, like in the 70s or the 80s, we would, 
they would fill out a card because they were new and people actually wanted to fill out cards then. And then we would, on Monday, we would bake bread and we'd show up at their house, knock on their door and ask if we could come in and talk to them about Jesus. Like imagine if I did that to you guys, like you'd call the police. Be like, what in the world? And so we, that, that was a thing. Um, also, um, Weird. You remember that $100 bill track? How jacked up was that? Like you'd leave a $100 bill on the ground, you know? And someone would be like, oh, check it out, 100 And then it would be like, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And you're just like, man. <laughs> I thought it was a hundy. <laughs> so like, here's the thing. <laughs> like we're so turned off by evangelism done bad. And, and that idea of like weird, awkward slogans and angry TV preachers and things like that, that we threw out talking about Jesus altogether. Like we're so afraid of that stuff. I was reading a blog the other day and this was written by a, by a millennial. And I think that's really important to say. I'm not bagging on you millennials. This is really, really good stuff. Listen. And I don't mean that by unlike other things millennials say. I just, I'm just saying this is, this is a younger generation writing this. Okay, this is really important. She says, as we establish ourselves firmly in the 21st century, tent revivals, traveling evangelists have become things of the past. Taught in history classes and portrayed in movies, evangelism is often presented as an old school, out of style idea with little value or relevance in our fast paced world, fast paced urban world. The reality is that social media platforms and trendy wall plaques are inundated with quotes preaching the idea of easy evangelism. Let's, let's look at this line right here. If we just live good enough lives, we can forgo the conversation entirely. And all the people around us will almost magically come to know Jesus through our good actions and selfless character. This style of evangelism is becoming more and more prevalent in a culture constantly looking for the fast track and simple fix. But if we believe God has called us to preach the gospel to all the nations and all people, we need to call the next generation back to a commitment of evangelism. This idea behind what she's saying is that the reality is every generation is just one deep. And so uh, what we're after is not converts to Christianity anymore. That's just not the thing. But to creating more disciples to Jesus, to announce that there's a life-changing uh, kingdom uh, ahead and, and kingdom of God is here. And that famous, there's a famous quote, but many people call it a misquote from St. Francis of Assisi, because we don't even think that he actually said it. Um, so I'm going to say it. <laughs> Go into all the world and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Which is, is a powerful way to say, hey, your life matters. Like, it's not just words, it's not just yelling at people, it's not just asking people where they're going to go when they die, and please don't do that. Um, it's not those things. Okay, it's about your whole life. But 
I would say that the other side of that is like, this is an announcement piece, right? This is like a, a, an announcement piece. It's somewhat akin to going into the family room and telling someone the daily news and if necessary, using words. It's like, what is that, charades? Like, I'm gonna act out what happened today. And, 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 I'm, and I'm kind of making fun a little bit, but I'm just trying to get us like it's a both and, right? The gospel is by definition something to be announced and it's, to be, and, and it's something to be lived. It has to be both. And when there's a disconnect is when those aren't the same, right? And so here's the deal. For us today in the room, it's like how are we gonna have influence in our culture how are we going to, how is the, the call of Jesus is to not only be faithful, but to be fruitful, like to be a witness. And here's the myth that a lot of us deal with. A lot of us think that, that it's only Christians that are proselytizing. No, 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 no. Everybody, something. Everybody's hawking something. Everybody's proselytizing. And I don't care if it's like the gospel of minimalism, the gospel of healthcare for all, the gospel of stranger things, the gospel of retirement, the gospel of more stuff. Everybody is selling something. Difference is, is that I think the kingdom of God is the best thing to sell. I think the kingdom of God is actually the best thing to talk about and to model and to live. And, and what does it look like to be holistic in doing that? That's what Daniel had. Daniel's life and his actions matched his words. Everything about him. So even in a secular city there, like hungry and thirsty for God, down to the bottom of the soul, I think that we can't escape the fact that we were made for a relationship with God, that we are hardwired for the kingdom that we're made for the kingdom and hard, hardwired for a relationship with our creator. And I was made for that. And my neighbor was made for that. And the homeless guy down the street was made for that. And we have good news that that is actually possible. And sometimes we need to go tell it. And most of the time we need to go live it. And our job as a creative minority is to be a witness to Jesus in our city. You don't need to wear a bad t-shirt or get a bullhorn, or please don't get a placard sign, and don't get a bumper sticker, please. Just begin to be known in public and in private as an apprentice of Jesus. Someone who believes and lives like Jesus, like Jesus is the king, and the kingdom of God is actually here right now. And we, do, we need to believe and live that for our friends and our family members that, that, that they actually can, can participate in that, can, can enjoy that, can, can fall in love with Jesus too. And, and my questions for us this morning are, who do you have faith for? Like, who do you pray for? Who are you called to be a witness to? Maybe you need to ask yourself, who do you have zero hope for? And Why? Like, may you be a witness to the God of everything. May you be an alternative. May we be an alternative community that proclaims the good news of God to a world that desperately needs to see it and hear it, okay? And so I wanna, I wanna do something a little different today as we close. I wanna bring Dan up as well. And, and him and I have been having a great conversation today and along really kind of... 
our journey together yep. about what it looks like to practice following Jesus and not just be like into the jargon, right? Right. And what I wanted to do today is I'm gonna have Dan share just a little bit, but I wanted to lead us in a time of actual, maybe it's repentance, maybe it's prayer for people in your lives. Maybe it's for you, like another like, hey, maybe there's a, there's a, there's a gap between the things I say I believe and the life I'm living and I need to bring that back together because people are watching, people are listening. Dan, what are some things that you might? Well, while you were, while you were talking, Ryan, something jumped in my head when you said, don't do the placard. <laughs> uh, I need to tell a little quick story. Of course. Uh, <laughs> of course. Dan, <laughs> right? I, I have it. a friend, Ian. Uh, Ian and I... Um, one of the places that we felt that this needs to start in telling people the good news is saying we're sorry as the church. Because mm -hmm. a lot of things have happened and a lot of church has done a lot of things that are really bad character and not excellent and mm -hmm. unfaithful. And so we decided to go out on a street corner with a cardboard sign like homeless people. But our sign said, we as Christians apologize for the church and for our brothers and sisters mm. that are not following Jesus. Mm. And uh, I don't know why we did it, but we, we did that and it just... You were a creative minority. I guess we were trying to be creative and some people actually gave us money because they didn't read the sign. <laughs> some people flipped us off and some people went like this and, and, and nodded their heads. But I think maybe one of the ways that this starts for the church uh, is by saying, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. by saying we're sorry. Uh, I don't know what that means, mm -hmm. but that just popped into my mind yeah. while you were talking at the end there. So we're gonna pray and we're gonna give you an opportunity to stand and pray. Actually, well, let's, we can all stand and as we pray. And I'm gonna, I'll close this with some scripture um, and the band will be up here too. So if you feel led to pray in any way about what it looks like to be a witness,